Hello and welcome to the Anime Rambling Boys Podcast, ARB for short. I am the artist formerly known as Ricky, aka Tropical Robot. What happened to Ricky? Some say he died during the Holy Grail War. We don't really know. Alright, and I'm bass, not bass, not the fish, also not the musical note. It just sounds cool. What up, everybody? We're here. Um, silver, uh, which is higher in quality than gold. Controversial statements, please. Hot takes later. Hot takes (laughs) later. Oof. And today we're going to be talking about an anime that's near and dear to Silver and I's hearts, and something to which Bass is new to, aka Fate Zero. So, general impressions of the show, gentlemen, what did you think? Masterpiece. 10 out of 10. Little As close to a 10 out of 10 as I've ever seen in anime. Yes, I've seen it multiple times, and that may be very high praise, but uh, you can't argue with facts. Oh my god, can't argue with facts. Okay, as someone who's like completely new to anything fate whatever, you know, overall impressions of the show... It's a, it's a good show. Great show. I feel like I say this every episode. Like, it's a good show, but but I don't want to be that guy. I will say, though, if you are like me coming into this for the first time, have a friend like I have these two who can just <laughs> tell you, like, certain things going on. Because you will have questions. You will be watching and being like, there's a lot of terms being thrown around that that are all capitalized in the subtitles if you watch it subbed, if you watch it subbed. And I'm like, huh, what's that? Pause the episode, Wikipedia. So it's a good show, but do know you're going to have to do a little bit of work if you're just coming into this for the first time. Lots of questions about world building. And you know I'm serious because I said the world and not the world. Oh my God. We'll have a JoJo's episode eventually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one day <laughs> one day um we're not so, ready for that yet yeah my uh general impressions of the show this is the second time i've seen it first time i've seen the dub i mean the sub not the dub um i was really caught by the voice acting in the sub the dub is amazing frankly you know i actually think the script in the dub is better than the translation in the sub um, I think Silver and I are in agreement about this. Yep. But yeah. But this time around, I really um I remember when I first watched it, it was just kind of like I was I was much like you base where it was like a lot of information coming at me at once. But I remember just being like, holy shit, like this is just so philosophically rich. And this time around, I really made an effort to unpack some of the ways in which it is philosophically rich and I think move beyond mm-hmm. some of the um, I guess like consensus opinions about Fate Zero within like the Anitube community because I think that while, you know, there's a lot of folks who've done some wonderful work on Fate Zero by, for example, calling it a Greek tragedy. 
um, and having these like very substantial analysis, I think that um, there are some, you know, flaws to those analyses that I, you know, kind of feel like I can, through my input, help to, you know, add to the discourse and whatnot. Yeah, so we have what we see. We have, you know, the fan in silver, the auteur in tropical robot, and the guy <laughs> who just watched it and is still like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> all right so i think we should probably move to just kind of talking about the show itself right um mm -hmm. i guess maybe a little bit of discussion about the plot or whatever but i'll let you guys kind of take it where you want with this if anything comes to mind yeah yeah sure thing i'll start the general premise of the show is there are seven people they're they're all mages they do magecraft the differentiation between magecraft and magic we'll get to later but it is very important. What you need to know is that these seven mages who are called masters summon heroic spirits from past or future uh, to fight in this Holy Grail war to obtain the Holy Grail to gain some kind of miracle slash wish. It varies per person. And all the... Yeah, that's all I can really think of to like really describe like the plot itself. And then... Uh, Baze, do you have any uh, anything else to add on to that? In the first... 20 minutes of episode one you're gonna get this scene where the two care where um obviously okay i also want to say there's a lot of names in this show there's a lot of names so if we get it wrong we're gonna apologize right now about pronunciation but you get a scene where kyrie who is an important character we'll get to him later is just being circled by two other characters and they're just dumping information all this backstory onto you and by the end of episode two though you do get the general plot it's like you said there's seven people who are like hey i want this mystical object in this war we're gonna fight so i'm gonna summon a person from history from mythology to fight on my side and there are different classes and you know different strengths and abilities of all these characters and they each have their own motivations for why they're doing the thing that they're doing and it's, mm -hmm. it just delves into, like, interesting, because the way the show is, I guess, plotted is that each of the seven pairs of characters, the master and the heroic spirit servant, has their own story to tell. And they all, like, hit and conflict with each other at different points. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And we'll definitely dive a little bit more into that point, which uh, Bass just brought up about the multiple perspectives in the story because I actually think it's one of the things that most important things that differentiates uh, Fate Zero from a standard Greek tragedy but and it's so obvious it's so in your face from the beginning <laughs> but anyways um yeah no but anyways I think this is a good uh segue to talking about some of the characters in Fate Zero you know more specifically oh, yeah. kind of like introducing them or whatnot so is there mm -hmm. what did you guys think of the characters of the the varied the wide and varied cast well before we start off with that i think we should introduce like the class system first so that way people aren't confused when we're calling people like saber and uh, archer and things like that so the seven masters summon seven class containers and they go from saber archer lancer caster writer assassin and berserker and each just depends uh, on, like, obviously, like, Saber, gotta use swords. But that is actually kind of controversial because there's a lot of archers that can throw swords at people. 
Yeah, basically each of the classes is a rough Dungeons and Dragons style approximation of their abilities. Like if I said this person's a lancer, you have a vague idea of what they can do, but each of them also has their mm -hmm. own mystical and magical abilities that makes them unique. Um, so yeah, so each of those seven classes, we, let's just start maybe at the top and go through each one. So at first, and probably the main character, she seems like, as someone who's just coming to the series, the face of the franchise, you have Saber and her master, Emiya, I'm going to mispronounce this, Kiritsugi? <laughs> Kiritsugi. Oh, Emiya. Yeah, I'm going to call him Emiya because, and I know there's another character down the line that shares that last name, but we're not talking about that series. We're talking about Fate Zero. So there's only one Emiya right now. Mm -hmm. So it's fine. So starting off with like Emiya and Saber... Saber, um, also spoiler alert, I guess, because if you're listening to this, we hope you've watched the show. <laughs> um, and if, if, even if not, you know, but we will be dropping spoilers about everything. So Saber is the personification of the old uh, Arthurian legend, King Arthur, but she is a woman who's named Artoria. Um, and it's sort of like a shock to the characters too, but it's brought up as like, oh... I'm the legendary hero, even though I'm a woman, but I played as a man in history in order just to, you know, help lead my people. So you have Saber, King Arthur, with Emia, who is anything but like her at all. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, mm -hmm. he's kind of the... Um... Kind of a cookie cutter, consummate utilitarian. Um, he's someone who, uh, as a result of a tragedy in his past, kind of adopted this philosophy of, uh, well, first of all, he adopted this goal of wanting to end war um, at all costs. And then he um, decided that uh, the way to do that, the proper way to do that, to live ethically would be by um, maximizing the amount of benefit and minimizing the amount of harm. He's someone who ended up becoming an assassin, uh, a mage assassin, um, as a result of the events that took place in his early life. And that's kind of where he's coming at it. So in the Grail War, he like fights very dirty and he justifies his, uh, let's say, um, I don't know, not uh, the most honorable tactics through uh, appeals to that um, ideology that he has. So yeah, on one hand you have Saber who's like, oh, straight up fighting for glory, but it's like, we have to do this in an honorable knightly way. Like she's called the King of Knights and she's like, I will win the Holy Grail in the most like straightforward battle type way that I know I can. While Emmy over here is just like, I will use any tactic. I don't care how like, it makes me feel ethically. I don't care how it is, because I know at the end of the day, it'll be better. So, as an assassin, he's cold, calculating, on the surface at least, and immediately has mm -hmm. conflict with Saber, because he feels that, like, she's just not going to do what I say. And so, there are definitely times throughout the story where he even tricks Saber into doing things, and that causes more conflict between them. So, that's, like, that, those characters' initial conflicts. And then... Emia also has a supporting cast of characters. Like, each of the pairs also has supporting cast of characters. And that we can get into later because his supporting cast is probably the most important. Mm-hmm. 
The best way to summarize Kiritsugu is that he is the personification of the ends justify the means. Mm, yes, that's actually pretty perfect. Which, at first, I was like, oh, you're that guy. And But at the end, it does like come back around to, I think, a satisfying conclusion to where it made him like at least probably my favorite character to like track through the series just to see how his inner thought processes were going. Yes. And then when people cite um, the idea that uh, Fate Zero is a tragic, um, a Greek tragedy, <clears throat> they uh, tend to uh, identify Kiritsugo as the main tragic hero of the story. Right. Yeah, for reasons we'll get into uh, later. But in addition to Kiritsugo and Saber, we have um, six other master-servant pairs. Um, you know, I think moving from Kiritsugo to his main rival probably makes sense. Uh, his main rival is uh, Kire Kotamine, um, who is a <laughs> member of the church, which is an institution um, within the, you know, the broader... Uh, Nazuverse or the type moon universe that like fate zero takes place in and he is you know really someone whose journey throughout the story is all about um and like a really twisted way self-discovery he's also a psychopath so he's his journey is about discovering that he's a psychopath um <laughs> yeah no it's kind of crazy and he begins the story with uh <clears throat> having uh assassin as his servant but assassin isn't at least in my opinion really too much of a character he's just or she's just kind of a proxy there because there's actually a hundred of them are actually just kind of a proxy for you know the commands and actions of kire and by the end of it he ends up uh kind of hijacking the servant of another one of the masters um, Tokiomi Tosaka, who is actually Kirei's uh, mentor and who taught him everything he knows about, um, well, maybe not everything he knows, but a lot about uh, Magecraft. Yeah, so one thing we could just start off with Kirei, because I think Kirei is the first character you really interact with in the series, like in the first episode where I talked about where they're, his father and Tosaka are circling him and sort of explaining what's going on. And from the jump, so you have this holy grail war setup where it's like, oh, we have decided that the rules are gonna be, these seven people are gonna summon these servants, they're gonna fight it out, and whoever's the winner gets the holy grail. But, and you know, you think about that, like, yeah, there are these rules about who can participate, who's what, how the fights are supposed to go. But when you really think about something like, I have a chance to obtain the Holy Grail. Why wouldn't I cheat? So it was actually refreshing to see how Kyrie and Tosaka, who technically are supposed to be like, you know, just fighting for their own personal glory. From the get, from the jump, collaborate to like, hey, we are going to make it so that Tosaka wins. And then they also bring in the church who's supposed to be officiating it, who is being overseen by Kyrie's father in order to make events that Tosaka wins. Because if, the, if Tosaka wins, they believe um, it'll be the most beneficial for their side. Their ultimate motives of reaching the root are 
stuck in lore and aren't really maybe as important to this story. But you have Tosaka, Kyrie, and Kyrie's father who represent like the church and an old magic family. And they're all collaborating together to make sure Tosaka wins. So Kyrie at first is sort of just, you know, a servant dog. He's highly effective, probably the strongest like base character without a servant is would you say that's a fair assessment i would say that's pretty tied yeah between him and uh kiritsugu yeah between him emia. and emia uh, i'm not gonna say his name <laughs> between him and emia they are probably the two most like by themselves capable um characters so to have him start off already being like I'm going in this knowing I'm going to like serve someone else really made it interesting to where later in the series he does develop his own motives and that's sort of how it goes um for his entire story um which also jumps into Tosaka's story who is the master of Archer Gilgamesh ancient mythological character who in theory is like the strongest character in the show like just the powers this man wields are absurd but because he's so powerful he is not a servant to tosaka at all like <laughs> gilgamesh immediately stands as like i am a god i am the king i get to do whatever i want and you serve me and so their relationship uh tosaka is a gilgamesh's is completely flipped from the typical quote-unquote master-servant relationship. So you have Emiya on one side, who's sort of like trying to accomplish X goals. Kyrie, who starts off as like someone who's been ordered to help someone else accomplish their goals. Tosaka, who's wielding incredible power, but has to like, who has to play coy with it in order to accomplish his goals. And then you have probably, I know, Silver's gonna go off on this. You have Waver and Ixander, aka um, Waver, who's a normal student mage who gets Ryder who, um, as his class, and Ixander, aka the Persian slash Middle Eastern name for Alexander the Great. Yeah, and they're like, they're probably the most, how should we say, fun characters to watch. I mean, Silver, <laughs> you can talk about this. You, you, you take this over. Oh yeah. Well, first off, the pronunciation is Iskander, oh, but aside from that, uh, yeah, there to me, like one of the things I love about Fate Zero is that, aside from counting Akiritsugu and Saber, because it's kind of like slightly understood that they're the main characters, but not really. Uh, to me, Iskander and Waver were my favorite characters and my main characters to watch because they were just so much fun. Waver starting off as like, oh, he just wants to prove himself. He steals an ancient relic from his master, who is also a master in the Holy Grail. Well, we're talking about that in a little bit. And then he summons the literal personification of, like, possibility, Iskandar. He conquered most of the world, and he's accomplished everything that Waver wants to essentially be. And that causes, like, a little bit of, like, contention and conflict between the two, because Iskandar kind of mocks him from the very beginning, saying, you only want to get the Holy Grail to get a little bit taller to so people would acknowledge you. That's not why you should be doing things. And so watching that relationship develop as they go, as the story went on was my favorite to watch. And 
the like let's see. I mean, without talking about them, you have to talk about the servants of the master of the Lancer, uh, Kenneth Lord Amaloy, who was a instructor at this institution for ma uh, Magecraft that Weaver was a part of, and. He, like, the start off, he just, like, rips on Waver for, uh, stupid papers saying, like, oh, like, there's a whole, like, uh, background ideology of classism and elitism in the show. We'll probably get to that later. But essentially, he rips on Waver for saying, like, oh, no, your family does not, like, set, set your destiny in stone. Like, you can, like, be good at Magecraft if you, like, do blah, 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 blah. Kane is like, nah, Waver gets mad, steals his relic, summons Alexander the Great. So that forces KNF to summon someone completely at random, and that just causes a whole different contention between KNF and his servant. Because the servant that he summons, um, the Ermood, is another knight who is very about honor, very about like, very much, very similar to Saber, and they and KNF is the polar opposite of that. He doesn't care for that whatsoever. Yeah, Kaneth uh, uh, is more about, like, the glory of winning. He's not like Emya in that he's a ruthless pragmatist. He's he's straightforward as in, like, oh, this is going to be a fight of people who are, like, honorable, who are fighting for the glory of the Holy Grail, and Lancer is my servant, therefore he is going to help me obtain my goals no matter what. Yep. And that's, mm -hmm. and that's so, probably Kanan's biggest flaw is that he is neither so pragmatic as Emya as to do whatever it takes, but he's also not like, how should we say, obsessively powerful enough that he's still arrogant about his abilities that it gets him messed up later in the story. Oh yeah. Yep. So there's a couple things I want to pick up on very quickly. Um, one, I want to make sure that, um, we are, um, I guess like semantically accurate in like describing, you know, um, Kiritsugo's pragmatism as being rooted in utilitarianism, because I actually think that, um, as contrasted with, uh, Tokiomi Tosaka, cause I think Tokiomi Tosaka is actually the character who's most, um, similar to like what we would call, what we could call, <clears throat> unmediated pragmatism you know just like kind of prioritizing success over anything else you know as he defines it um because kiritsugo does have that like you know guiding uh moral and ideological compass which i think is important to keep track of that um the other thing that i wanted to say is uh well two comments first um on uh Kenneth. so Kenneth, you know as you all have rightly pointed out is you know that kind of a self-righteous and aristocratic scholar, you know? Um, and, you know, back to what Silver was talking about, he really is doomed, um, I would say, by the overemphasis that he places on bloodlines, but, you know, and sort of, like, the the status that's, like, associated with that, and, you know, there's, like, the classism that Silver brought up. And then, secondly, you know, Lancer is you know this quintessential character and but it's interesting we'll get into this later when we're exploring like the you know the ideologies of the different characters but he does serve you know this ideal of honor um over everything but he does it so blindly that it prevents him from seeing and making an accurate judgment about the character of Kaneth, whom is frankly a profoundly dishonorable person 
you know, and then, you know, to sort of move on a little bit, you know, then we got the wild cards, you know, anybody want to start talking about the wild cards in the Holy Grail War? We'll talk about Bugman, who for the first, I'm like, well, I guess the series of Fate Zero is roughly divided into two seasons, right? Yeah. Uh, The first season is like the introduction to all the characters and then it uh, accumulates in a big battle to stop one of the characters we'll get into later and then the second season is more about the actual getting back to the holy grail war but my favorite character at least for the very interesting first season because his motivations were clear from the beginning and i just it was sort of already going down that path of sad we have Bugman, aka um i know his last name is matoy karia matoy there's a lot of k names guys there's a lot i wonder of- if that was intentional huh Interesting. Maybe it's a quirk, probably a quirk of the language that like as English, as an English speaker, I just don't have privy to. Like I can't see the katakana of how they're spelled. They probably all mean something. Yeah. Um, can't speculate on that. But Karia Matoi, who is sort of... Mato, sort of, Mato. Mato, who comes into the Holy Grail <laughs> War sort of as an not necessarily unwilling, he's fully willing participant, but he joins... Not in order to win the grail for himself, in order to prevent uh, someone else from going down this dark path that he doesn't want to. So basically, Karya left his magical family a long time ago because he was disgusted with their means and was just like, I don't want any part of this. But when his friend's daughter basically, well, his friend basically gives up her daughter to Tosaka's, no, no, because... His friend is in... Oh, this is confusing. I'm sorry. His friend is married to Tosaka. Right. Right? Right. As you can see, all the characters are in weird ways connected. But his friend is married to Tosaka. So Tosaka has two daughters. And one of them, Rin, he's like, you will inherit everything I have. The other daughter, he gives to Karya's family in order for them to have something magical because their family has been diluted in magical talent for a couple years. But the process of becoming a powerful person in Karia's family is very brutal. You basically have to become a host to like these man-eating bugs. And this young girl is going to go through this. And Karia's just like, no way. I'm not going to do this. He goes to his uh, head of his family who has his own story and all that stuff and basically says if i win you the holy grail will you let this girl go and of course they're just like well we have nothing to lose so yes go do go do go do that so karia goes through the process of injecting himself with these bugs to give him magical talent way beyond his abilities but it's brutal and it's and it's ending his life as he speaks but he really feels like he's on this journey to save this one person. And if he can do that, everything will be okay. And we'll definitely, it seems like we might have some uh, differences of interpretation with uh, Karia, but I think that's like a really good way of describing, you know, kind of like what he ends up, um, like his his uh, motivations as he understands them. Right. Oh, and then his sir Berserker, which... You know, just think of any type of Berserker from any RPG you can think of. It's stated to be one of the most powerful of the classes. But as you can probably imagine, very uncontrollable, very wild. But Berserker even eventually has his own story to tell. 
Yes, Berserker is in fact Lancelot. And I don't know if uh, you know our audience is necessarily familiar with Arthurian legend, but I think the Fate Zero does a good job of unpacking. You know that there. Um, you know Lancelot. For folks who are unfamiliar, basically. Um, I guess, uh, had an affair with, um, King Arthur's, uh, wife, if I'm getting that correctly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. One of your, is King Arthur's wife. Yes. And then, um, you know, that's something that came to light. I think he ran away with her. That's something that came to light. It was a great portrayal in amongst like the, the round table of knights. And, uh, so his story is kind of, you know, him being someone who, and this relates to Saber's ideology, right? Of like honor and justice and being like a martyr king, but also what ends up being her flaw as like, uh, as a character. Um, but basically he felt like he wanted to be punished for his transgression, but and he wanted to be understood as like a human being, but these were things that Saber did not do. These were things that Saber could not do as someone who was really mostly concerned with having a holier-than-thou kind of, like, uh, cleaving to this ideal of, like, knightlyhood and, like, you know, being, like, a martyr king. Right. And it turns and it just turns into a whole tragic tale of, like, Lancelot just having this inner hatred and anger towards himself, but also towards Saber, but, like... And it turns him into the Berserker. And that's all revealed later in the end of the story. But for now, at the beginning, you're sort of just like, okay, he summoned this like wild, uncontrollable beast that could win him the whole thing. Because in one of the first episodes, Berserker goes like toe-to-toe with Gilgamesh, which at the time, no one was able to do. Yep. And now we have our final master-servant pair. And if it sounds like we're just talking about like details trust us you need to have all this info down when you watch the show because otherwise you're just going to be watching people running around basically there's a lot of talking in the show and <laughs> it, it is important to at least maybe when you watch the show you don't need like a notebook or something but at least have like a track of like who is related to who who is related to what and why are they doing x because that that'll save you a lot of time honestly Yep. And so to kind of uh, bring this uh, character analysis to, I guess, uh, you know, provisional close, there's uh, the last uh, master-servant duo, and these are the Psychopaths, a.k.a. Ryunosuke, I actually don't know his last name, I don't remember it, and uh, Caster, a.k.a. Bluebeard, a.k.a. Gilles de Raw. Yes, and if you don't know, all these historical figures, Gilles de Raw was a... French, I forget, noble person or like warrior who like was close or obsessed with Joan, uh, Joan of Arc. Um, the most important thing to know about him and Bluebeard is that in old French or West European folklore, Bluebeard is a known like child, like pedophile and killer. Mm -hmm. So he's summoned as the class caster, which is all about summoning these, you know, ethereal beings of like destruction a lot of lovecraftian monsters a lot of just a lot of tentacles next hentai oh my god just a lot of tentacles a lot of tentacles and so he's probably the most like magic range based like obsessive character and as um 
Tropical Robot uh, iterated that him and Ryunesuke, Ryunesuke, Ryunesuke is also Ryunosuke. Ryunosuke. I'm so bad at this. Ryunosuke, <laughs> Learn to Ryunosuke. pronounce things. I'm just kidding. I'm trying. Ryunosuke is a murderer himself. He's a serial murderer, particularly of children. And he was actually in the process of like, oh, I'm going to try to summon a demon because why not? And then he became Caster's um, master and he was immediately thrilled. And from the get-go, they are the most in sync uh, master-servant pair. Which is pretty terrifying. And they end up being uh, the kind of like big bad guys of the first arc of Fate Zero. Yeah. In the, in the, in the first episode where Caster appears and like um, the little boy that Ryunosuke is about to kill and Caster lets him go... I thought, like, even just for a split second, I thought, like, it was going to be one of those where Caster is just actually this super nice, like, guy, but, like, he just has to deal with Ryunesuke. But no, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> oh, and also, an important piece of background for uh, Gil Ray that actually comes into play for the story itself. The backstory on, on him is that he was a general under uh, Jean d'Arc, uh, who went insane or just started succumbing to madness once uh, John d'Arc was, like, uh, burned at the stake uh, to the point that he started, like, cursing God. And then it just uh, dived down from that to, like, what he ended up becoming. And that becomes a point of contention in the story because at one point he confuses the saber, uh, which is Artoria, Arthur Pang Dragon, to be John d'Arc. And that kind of basically embodies the biggest, like, conflict within the first arc like the first season just like caster trying to get um saber for himself thinking that like oh i won the holy grail my wishes come true and conflict ensues from that so, so we have our our 14 main players on the stage yes absolutely which i think is like uh now that we've gotten that out of the way um, it's a good point to transition into some of like the larger themes in terms of <clears throat> how to understand the, you know, the story itself, you know, um, mm -hmm. and sort of like the events that take place. Um, so commonly, um, you know, within like the like ani anime YouTube community, a lot of folks tend to, um, you know, and you can specifically look at people like uh, Alexander, who I love personally. And uh, the cartoon cipher, as you know, folks have been kind of instrumental in like advancing this idea. But there's people who have there's kind of a consensus that's formed that uh, Fate Zero is a Greek tragedy. And I think that, you know, they get a lot of stuff right in their analyses for sure. But I think ultimately that it's not an accurate claim to call Fate Zero a Greek tragedy. I think it's actually kind of reductive. Um, and it does have a lot of elements of a Greek tragedy, but I think that when we, and you know, uh, these folks all kind of like base their arguments off of the same thing, which is like, uh, Aristotle and like his, like the way that he kind of like defines, um, tragedy and like the poetics. But I think that they miss some of the really like important things that distinguish, you know, this, uh, story and that kind of make it relevant for, you know, uh, for us who are living in like modern society, 
Yes, we live in a society. You know, we're living in a society! But, <laughs> namely what I'm you know, aiming to kind of uh, talk about is like the, first of all, like the, we've already brought this up already in our discussion, but like the importance of like multi-perspectivity in this like, um, you know, in this story, which is not the same thing as there being multiple characters. It's basically like the idea of, you know, you having kind of a story where there are uh, more than one character, each of which has like their own ideologies or their own ideals, and each of which is given ample amount of screen time and where there's like a significant like interaction between like the different ideals and ideologies and kind of seeing how that uh, plays itself out, you know, within like the context of the story. Um, yeah, so that's like one thing that I wanted to point out as far as like why it's like not a Greek tragedy, you know, like what makes it or yeah, I, I guess as far as like, you know, to kind of change that a little bit, what kind of makes it, you know, elements that are Greek tragic, you know, where one, you know, we could really get, we could get really nitty gritty with this shit, which I don't necessarily want to do here, but, you know, I think the most important things to point out are like you know it does follow like the structure of a greek tragedy to a large extent it does have like a common um action which is like kind of like what these like like the overarching thing that these folks are trying to get done but also how they end up like faring throughout the course of like uh the you know the story and that's like they all want to get a wish granted from the you know the holy grail and you know that's kind of like the thing that's like motivating their actions and then there's also like the presence of like errors you know like tragic or like you know like kind of like intellectual errors that or errors made in ignorance or misjudgment that kind of lead these folks to like you know their own their downfall or to a lack of success you know um so those are kind of like the two big things that i think folks you know hit on that are in fact like there's more but you know i don't want to I want to keep this as brief as possible um but you know what i think when you bring in like the elements of like multi-perspectivity you know it kind of lets you frame things as like it's not just focusing on like one character you know like if the story were all completely about kiritsugo you know and like from his perspective but it's kind of focusing on like all of the characters and how i think ultimately there's like a tragic flaw in most if not all of the ideologies of the characters and what you kind of get that emerges from the narrative as a result of that is a story where um basically you get this message that like simplistic ideologies um are not able to like explain um and you know lead to like one being able to like change like reality you know there's there's like a problem there's like a gap between you know our ideals and our ideologies and like what reality actually is right and like start off it's like you could easily say there is no main character like sure emia and saber might get all most of may get a plurality of the focus but they don't get a majority of the focus like at all um and then the flaws of each of the characters, like we stated some of them before, but you could really just delve into how, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, they're all trying to get this wish, right? I'm just going to say it. No one gets what they want at the end. Absolutely no mm -hmm. one 
got accomplished their goals. In fact, so I mean, I know we just said well, 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 well. There's some ambiguity as to this, for sure. But Kirei, whether or not the Grail granted his wish, which is what there's ambiguity about, he got what he wanted. I think Kirei's story might be one of the most interesting stories. So like we said before, he starts off as Assassin's Master. And within the first like couple of episodes, you get this sense, like, you know, Kirei's working for Tosaka and the church. He mm -hmm. attacks Tosaka with Assassin just straight off the bat. And from my perspective, I was like, oh, wait, Kire is doing whatever it takes to win this thing. Maybe he'll have his own goals. And Assassin just gets wiped out immediately by Tosaka's Gilgamesh, Tosaka's archer. And Kire immediately withdraws from the war and goes into protection under the church of his father. And you're just thinking to yourself, wow. He just failed, and now he's bad. But you actually figure out later that, no, this was all part of the plan, actually. Because, as we said before, since Assassin isn't just one character, it's multiple personalities, he's technically not out of it yet. He's just now retired so that the other characters can, like, forget about him and he can work behind the scenes. Which automatically shows from the get-go that this entire Holy Grail War from like the people who made it, from the people who are administrating it, from the people who are participating in it, are all dirty. It's all a smokescreen and mirrors. And it's all corrupt, you know? Right, right. Which ends right. up coming back around to kind of bite everyone that's like involved in the Holy Grail War and even people who weren't involved in the Holy Grail War. But we'll get to that in a little bit. And so Kirei mm -hmm. basically goes along, just does background gathering information. The most important thing also to note is that him and Emiya note that the other person is the one other person in the entire group that they can't understand why they're doing the things that they're doing. So they're automatically set on a path to meet each other. So Kirei again uses the assassins just to spy, to help Tosaka win, to help like get accomplished closer to his goals and then at one point i think is it like the first confrontation he has with um mayu and at, it's at the winter castle is it where he re-enters mm -hmm. the playing field is that correct i think the first time that it actually happens is uh when kiritsugu emia blows up a hotel to try to get lancer's master to die Oh, and yes. then Kire reads that move and he's there waiting for him, but he runs into Maya instead. Basically, Kire re-enters the field to kill Emiya. Instead, mm -hmm. he runs into Emiya's wife and his assistant girlfriend? Slash lover. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, Emiya's got moves, uh, let's just say that. So... <laughs> It's left ambiguous as to what her actual, like, thing is. Right. So, a little bit of backstory on Emiya again. We Each of these characters has a supporting cast, too. There's a lot of characters involved. So, in Emiya's case, he... The reason he's in the war is he was hired by this... There's one of the families, the Eisenburns. 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 And they're like, hey, we created this homunculus, this fake human that 
will procreate with you in order to make our perfect soldier for a future Grail War. And they hire Emya to meet with this homunculus, this woman. And it doesn't say this necessarily in the story, but in the background information, Emya basically raised her sort of not raised that's not the correct word it's like gave her personality yeah yeah she was born she didn't really have much she was intelligent she's a fully grown woman homunculus like can do things but she has no perspective on the world and emia kind of entered basically this is all background information too that i read that wasn't like presented in the show too much in the show she's already like his wife and they're just together and they have a daughter and so his wife, whose name is Iris Veal, who's, um, is completely committed to accomplishing Emia's goal. So from the get-go, they are in sync and are like, we are going to help each other to accomplish this goal, to make a better world also for our daughter and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. so, and then Emia also has Mayu, who... Wait, let me interject yeah. for a second. Oh, very go quickly. Ahead. Go ahead. And there's also a super interesting uh, little bit of, like, uh, homoeroticism between um, Irie and um, Saber, which is sort of, narratively speaking, um, played off as a sort of show, like, the contrast between, like, Iris Veal and uh, Saber's, like, relationship, which is one of, like, genuine, like, you know love and care and then saber and kiritsugo's um relationship which is really has them you know kind of diametrically opposed to each other both in their method in their methods mainly in their methods mainly in their methods mm -hmm. right and from the beginning saber's always talking to iris view being like why do you follow kiritsugi or ugh. Emya, why do you follow? Yeah, I, this is so bad. I'm just gonna keep calling him Emya. I hope people don't know who I'm talking about. Like, why do you follow him? He's clearly like not like from my perspective, not that great of a guy. He's kind of dirty, mm -hmm. underhanded, and blah blah. And Iris Veal is always just like he has a goal. He like she acts as the mediator between them and is like, as long as you trust in me, and that I trust in him. You know what I mean? And so Saber goes along with that. And that sort of is their whole triangular relationship involved. And then you have Mayu, who is Emiya's assistant that he... Um, so Emiya was raised by an assassin in his uh, previous uh, like childhood backstory. That's how he became the how good he is. He found Mayu and gave her her name. That's not even her real name. We don't know her real name. And raised her to be an assassin too. And then they are like also perfectly in sync on the whole like pragmatic assassin. We're just going to do what needs to be done. She's completely loyal to him in every type of way. And then they also have mm -hmm. a relationship which isn't explained much in the show either. Like Emya has a wife in Iris Veal. But then he's making out with Mayu too. And then Mayu and Iris Veal also know about each other. Uh. <laughs> it's a polyamorous situation. Let's put right. it like yeah. that. It's a polyamorous situation. Polyamorous situation. Like, I think Ilya, uh, Ilya's Veal just recognizes that, like, yeah, like, she knows she's going to die. And she doesn't really want Kitty to go to be alone. So her ultimate thing is, like, he wants her, him to be happy. So she's not that upset about the whole, like, Mayu thing. 
Right. And it doesn't cause any too much conflict between them. Like, I feel like they all have pre-established their relationships with each other. And like I said, there's no, like, secrets between Emya and Iris Veal, at least when it comes mm-hmm. to, like, the relationships they have with the other characters. Yes. Now back to Kirei. Yes. Back to yes. Kirei. So what I think is particularly interesting about Kirei, um, in the context of, okay, so I'm going to throw a word out there, guys. Um, get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. It's coming. Um, I actually think that, you know, when I brought up the whole, like, multi-perspective thing as, like, a feature of the, the drama of Fate Zero, um, I actually think that, you know, that's something, you know, and we could, like, get into, like, the fucking, like, history of this, but, like, I'm not going to. Um, maybe in, like, some future content, we'll see. But, um, basically, the point that I wanted to make is that that whole idea of, like, you know, presenting, like, multiple perspectives is an idea that's like you know uh postmodern in nature and that's like oh what the fuck is that kind of mean word but like basically the point is that like you know to contrast like you know postmodernism with like modernism is like helpful to clear this up postmodernism kind of so whereas modernism kind of holds that you know there's kind of like an objective truth with a capital t and we can like know what that truth is that's like the core of like the modernist belief through like rationality and science um postmodernism kind of says nah fam um actually truth is uh socially constructed and uh there are limits to uh truth of the lowercase t and there are limits to what like humans can know about shit and there's kind of like an emphasis on like multiple perspectives that comes along you know and like stories and philosophies of like perspective that come about as a result of like you know the the dawn of like postmodern thought um but to sort of like connect that back to like Kirei, um, and, you know, kind of, like, the, I guess, like, the, the climate or the background noise of, you know, the, the story of Fate Zero, um, one thing that I think is quite interesting about Kirei, um, and this is something that was pointed out by, uh, you know, it has, like, parallels to our world, where it was pointed out by, like, um, lots of folks pointed this out, basically, that, like, what started to happen when folks became aware about the relativity of like you know things like truth is that people kind of were left with this like vacuum where they couldn't really like turn to like religion as like something that would fill their lives with meaning because that had been dispelled as dogmatic and they couldn't turn to like science as something that you know would fill them with certainty either because there are limits to you know scientific inquiry you know sciences you know not something that's going to give us like the answers to the riddle of the universe um you know or so you know these arguments go and so kirei is an interesting figure because he's kind of caught between you know he's kind of that that person who uh emerges in this like vacuum of meaning he's like he's you know ends up being like a nihilist right but he that he just kind of like doesn't really have any doesn't know who he is and so he's kind of spent his life turning to religion and you know not really getting the answers that he wants from like religion and the church and you know not really feeling satisfied with like the answers that he's gotten from magecraft which is and this is i'm going to introduce a super important distinction which is like almost always erased by folks who discuss this shit um magecraft and magic are not the same fucking thing they're different things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. magecraft is like alchemy and Furmetor Alchemist Brotherhood. 
it follows certain rules and it can't you know like it can't like enact miracles like there's like it's it's rationally explainable it's systematic it's like science in that sense uh, magic is miraculous magic is something that like defies like the established laws of the universe um, and this is like all within like the you know the the uh, universe that like fate zero takes place in but the point being that Kirei is kind of this person who you know doesn't really have meaning and in his life from either of those sources and then he ends up like so the story his story and the narrative ends up being one of like uh self-discovery albeit like a fucked up story of self-discovery where we end up with this like psychopath and this is actually something that makes the story not post like kind of not super postmodern and that postmodernism would say there's no inherent anything but he is an inherent psychopath so you know i don't want to make the claim that it's necessarily like a postmodern tragedy that's not what i'm trying to say i'm just trying to say there's elements of that in here and so he does go through this journey of like self-discovery um and ends up kind of arriving at like a point where his conclusion is i just want to fucking impose my will upon like reality and like you know ideals don't fucking you know uh there's no absolute source of meaning so i'm just gonna impose my will on reality and that's what he does he destroys and that's who he becomes um in the narrative he along the way is let's just say gently pushed along by his <laughs> master's servant gilgamesh because gilgamesh is my favorite servant of all the servants gilgamesh is the one i was most interested in seeing talk because apart from like his actual fighting and capabilities and talks about battle is actually secondary to like what he does behind the scenes with tosaka and kirei gilgamesh views tosaka as completely just like someone who's just there just another person to bask in his glory he doesn't really care about the war he cares about the holy grail in the sense of like I only want it so that other people can't have it, which to me is like an interesting yeah. take on the whole like supreme, arrogant, like godlike being idea where it's not even about like, oh, it's not even that I want this. I just want it so you don't have it, which, you know, is somewhat kind of a childish thing to think about. But when you're literally a, at least in his backstory, a half god, half human king that was that is the originator of pretty much every other quote-unquote contemporary western myth that we have in today's world you sort of we would see how he would grow that ego and the interesting thing about Gilgamesh is you see him casually other than Saber you very rarely see the other servants just like walking around and interacting with people well oh and uh Iskandar, Iskandar, Iskandar as well so those three are like the three main like ones that like just go about the world still just not fighting, not even trying to think of ways to fight, but are just like, hey, let's explore a bit. And every mm -hmm. time Gilgamesh is in his casual clothing, he lets his hair down. He just goes and pokes Kyrie a bit and be like, hey, what do you like to do? Hey, you, you're, you're enjoying yourself, aren't you? I'm noticing things about you. And as much as Kyrie denies it, he knows Gilgamesh is right. And so at the end of the day, it actually becomes Gilgamesh who prods Kyrie to indulge deeper and deeper into his um, inner desires, which 
in the end, and if we want to talk about tragedy, leads to uh, like Tosaka's demise, actually. Mm-hmm. Which is actually an interesting segue to kind of talk about Tosaka for a minute. Because, you know, and keep this trend going of like these people's ideals and all that kind of having like flaws in them. Tosaka, as I've kind of mentioned before, the way that I understand him is he's a ruthless pragmatist, but he's also someone who's like very informed, much like uh, Kenneth is by his like heritage, you know, Um, but to sort of get to um, his like uh, his flaw, Tosaka, you know, it's not that he doesn't also to sort of qualify things a little. It's not that he um, doesn't like love his daughters you know for example like rin and sakura who's the daughter that he ends up giving up to the matos because he does love them but he just loves them in a way that's like twisted by his ideology where he's like it's all about like success and it's all about getting to the root you know but he ends up being kind of blinded by his like aristocratic like cast of mind you know he kind of like discounts kire as like anything but being like he says he limits kire to being like a pawn or a loyal vassal and he's you know, we kind of mentioned this, kind of got into this a little bit. He's kind of honestly a little disingenuous towards Gilgamesh because he's like, he kowtows to Gilgamesh, you know, he like genuflects to him, but he also doesn't really understand, respect, or even attempt to like mutually align with like Gilgamesh and like the interest of like actually, you know, like I guess like coming together to win the war. Um, and what kind of ends up happening is that, you know, he's stabbed in the back by both of them. <laughs> Like, he's actually stabbed. He's literally stabbed in the back by Kirei. Kirei pulls a sneaky on him and stabs him in the back. Uh, he does, <laughs> doesn't he? And it, it's one... And you see it coming. Like, maybe not... Like, the second Tosaka's like, I've taught you everything. I have taught you. You've been so good for me. Um, I made my will so that you could be the guardian if something were to happen to me over my daughter. And da, da, da. Here's a knight. Here's a big ass dagger <laughs> that symbolizes my complete faith in you. Well, look at the time. Guess I should turn my back to you and <laughs> walk away. <laughs> Death flags are everywhere. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those where I was just like, oh, I know what. And he just, sta- just, just stabs in the back. Tosaka dies tragically, and even though for most of the story you could say he was an antagonist to many of the characters, it still was kind of like he was just trying to do what he felt was right within his family. Like, it's even in, again, supplemental materials required for this, stated that he is one of the weakest heads of his family in, like, a long time. Right. And so he's constantly just trying to do his duty as the head of the Tosaka family to went to get to the root so they could accomplish their goals and then yes he tragically gets killed and then Gilgamesh is just like well now I'm aligned with Kyrie and now I'm Kyrie's uh servant but their relationship is much more even at least they have a mutual respect of each other way more than uh Tosaka and Gilgamesh had Yes, oh, yeah. and to clarify things very quickly, this is uh, after Assassin has been killed by Iskandar, which is something oh, that happens, yeah. yeah, in the in the story. So Kirei doesn't have a servant, and then ends up, like, teaming up with Gilgamesh, and they enter into this conspiracy to kill uh, Tosaka. Um, but that, I think, can sort of be a nice pivot towards, like, talking about, uh, first, someone who uh, has, like, a similar, you know, ideology to that of Tosaka, 
um, but is just frankly much more self-righteous. And that's Lord Il Malui, Kenneth Archibald. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, so he's basically, the way that I see it, he's, you know, this kind of self-righteous and aristocratic, like, scholar, you know, who, again, is, like, motivated by this, like, desire to get to the root, and he ends up being kind of being, like, a, a foil for Waver, but Lancer as well, and ultimately he's doomed by his, in his case, it's, I think, right in your face, like, the flaws of this, like, you know, kind of, like, classist ideology which is that he just completely underestimates kiritsugo during their fight and he's like this guy could never defeat me and then boom just oof ends up getting wrecked yes because if people don't know emia's nickname is the mage killer like he specialized <laughs> in killing mages so i don't know what kaneth was thinking when he was like well i'm just gonna kill the mage killer <laughs> <laughs> he took a calculator was his downfall man was he bad at math <laughs> <laughs> this oh man so calculator risk but a man am i bad at math <laughs> so basically in the first fight um that kaneth himself participates in kiritsugo basically uses this special bullet which completely wrecks his quote-unquote magic circuits which don't worry about it too much. It's just the thing that magic is like used to connect to the body or magecraft actually. Cause remember there's a difference between magic and magecraft. Mm-hmm. And Important because of that, he is done. He can no longer like use his magecraft. He can't fight. He's on the brink of death. You know, he still has Lancer, but he's basically out of commission. Also, uh, important to note that he is a profoundly dishonorable motherfucker. Oh yes, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Gun. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like rock paper scissors, but it's magic versus gun. Right. So, but going back to the thing. So after Kaneth is basically subdued, his wife, wife, right? Yes. Well, fiance. His fiance, who has also been supporting him. Basically, Kaneth had his fiance supply the mana for Lancer to be corporal in the world. So they're already a team. But because Kaneth is out, his wife, or fiance, fiance, who has been sort of just in the background for most of the story, just sort of supporting, um, so brutally takes. <laughs> control of lancer from him mm-hmm. so basically well like, attempts to I, wrest control of lancer but you know this kind of gets to, like lancer and like his like honor bound ethic where he's just like i'll only serve you because you're working for my master who is the person that i pledge my loyalty to as an honorable knight should but you know sort of get into like why he believes that it's uh quite interesting because in fact the reason why lancer sort of like blindly serves this like ideal of honor is you know and it ends up you know ultimately being like his downfall his tragic you know flaw his harmatia as aristotle might say um i don't know why i just pronounced it that way but you know what let's run with it <laughs> um but anyways oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um anyways 
he uh in his past life um ran away with the woman that was promised to uh his kind of like military uh knightly leader fion mccumhale and then he uh confessed to what happened brought everyone back he was kind of hoping he'd get away with it and things would be fine he could atone for what he did and no he was killed by uh fion so the lesson that he learned is just like stay true to like your honor you know or prioritize honor over personal desire in all cases when like really in that example there was a lot of other um you know extenuating circumstances like you know for example there being like a system in place that like made it so that the woman you know so that love was like a status thing and not like a love thing you know what i mean um, and so he doesn't take, he doesn't like really learn that and it ends up biting him in the ass because he's unable to like assess the character of Kenneth Elmoloy, which ultimately leads to one of the top five betrayals of anime of all time. Okay. So, um, basically what happens is Lancer is now fighting with Kenneth's fiance while Kenneth is out. Um, unfortunately, Kenneth's fiance is not pretending particularly adept at assessing the situation that she's put herself in and so oh, no. <laughs> she gets captured and disconnected from lancer by mayu and emya they are basically like oh look at this fool just out in the open and just basically just take her hostage in the process while that is happening kanif goes to the church aka kirie's father and so there are these things called command spells, which all the masters have. And at first, it signifies you as a master of the servant. And you have three uses to compel your servant to do whatever you want. No matter what. Um, they disappear over time as you use them. One of the main plot points is that the church has a store of extra command spells. And that they, they at one point, are like, oh, as a reward for fight uh, this one uh problem later will give you an extra command spell so kanith goes to the church and basically declares like hey i'm pretty much out i need some protection da 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 and the or like can i get like another command spell or something and kirie's dad is like about to give it to him and when he gives him the extra command spells kanith then just shoots him just just kills him <laughs> yes and then kirei then comes back and takes all the command spells from his dad right that and then kirei comes back sees this and takes all the command spells of his dad which probably is the signaling the point that kirei has no more influences in his life other than gilgamesh <laughs> uh but that sort of gets to the dishonorable as you know uh base was saying the dishonorable nature of kenneth el meloy right so <laughs> then Kenneth comes back to his place with the command spell and Lancer and they're fighting Saber. But in the process, Emia basically comes up behind him and says, hey, I have your fiance. I will literally just shoot her in the face if you do not command your servant to kill himself. And let's just say it is brutal. Yep, brutal. He is straight up gangster. Yeah. Um, so basically, the deal is Emia cannot harm Kaneth or his fiance if Kaneth 
commands Lancer to kill himself and retires. And so Kaneth, who maybe in his one genuinely good act, does it. And to the detriment of Lancer, who this whole time has been fighting with this idea of honor and being like, I'm just trying to do the right thing and da da da. And, you know, he stabs himself and in the end curses everyone there in a very tragic death. And you think, wow, this show is brutal. Emiya will literally do anything to get what he wants. And you think, well, that's the end. And then... <laughs> Emiya... I think he lights a cigarette, right? Because yes, he's a total he badass. A he yeah, that a was a signal. And he says, yes, I can't hurt you. And then Maya shoots Elmoloy and just straight kills him in cold blood. Yeah, shoots Elmoloy and her, uh, shoots Elmoloy and his fiance and just kills him. And is like, yeah, I can't kill you. And that doesn't mean she can't. And that, that was the point of the show where I was like, this show is brutal. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it also marks a turning point for Saber because Saber also kind of loses it and is just like, I don't understand you people. How could you let... Because at the time, Saber and Lancer had sort of a friendly rivalry where they acknowledged each other's strengths, but they were on the same plane of, oh, we're fighting for honor. Like, I enjoy fighting you. Whoever wins is going to be a glorious battle. Duh, duh, duh. And in the end, all that's left is betrayal, murder, like cold-blooded backstabbery, and Saber is just not about it at all. Hey everybody, Bass here. Wondering why the recording just stopped? Well, this is because this is actually part one of our two-part analysis of Fate Zero. So make sure you look out for part two being released on a streaming platform near you. Remember to follow us on Twitter at at boysanime. That is at B-O-I-Z-A-N-I-M-E. All right, I'll be sure to catch you all in the next episode. Peace!